Hello everyone! Before we begin this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films, we wanted to remind you about our contest going on right now. We have three exclusive advanced reader edition copies, the paperbacks from San Diego Comic Con, of Star Wars A New Dawn by John Jackson Miller that we are giving away. To enter, send an email to swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com, put A New Dawn in the subject line, and put your mailing address in case you win inside the body of the email. We'll be announcing the date that we'll be drawing the winners sometime in the near future. But for now, just get those entries in. One entry will get you in there for a possibility of any of the three copies. No multiple entries necessary. Now, on with the show. A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the force. That's right, listener. Welcome to episode 141 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website's second airborne division at www.starwarsreport.com slash beyondthefilms. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, Zune, as well as Stitcher, and right on our own Facebook and Twitter pages at SWBeyondFilms. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Erleman. And with me, like the hive mind of the wolf worms, many other personalities, the EU guru himself, the count of those two continuities, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Hey, everybody. You know what actually makes this episode uh, extra cool? Let's have one of us randomly fight a Yushan Vong that has no reason to be there for no friggin' reason! That'd be so awesome! Maybe a Wampa? Yeah, or a Wampa. At least a Wampa makes sense to be there, but that's another thing. Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars, and so do we. This episode, we explore Joe Schreiber's All Lockdown. Now, before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you our quick, spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. Yeah, this is an odd one. Uh, Joe Schreiber had previously written Death Troopers and Red Harvest. So, so far, he's basically known for the extreme Star Wars horror stories, focusing predominantly on zombies. Basically, the Star Wars variant of zombies, or one of these Star Wars variants of zombies. You may recall they came out around the time that we also got stuff like the Brain Worm stuff in the Clone Wars, where it seemed like Star Wars was just kind of pushing it a little too far into that genre. Now we've got a story that is sort of horror. Um, it has horror elements to it. It's it's more like Star Wars meets Oz. Uh, it's prison mm. darkness. It's uh, violence inside the prison. And you do have kind of a horrific monster as part of it that is a little more grotesque than what we might see in other Star Wars stories most of the time. But I'm not sure that I would say that this is 
by and large, a horror story, so much as it's sort of a darker story that has horror elements to it. Uh, it is not entirely a standalone. We will find that this story plays the same role in a somewhat better way, but still a similar role to what we got with Buyer's Market that I bash so often from Timothy Zahn. Buyer's Market, you may recall, was basically there just to explain how Lando got one of the adats that he put underneath Nomad Station on Nikon back in the Thrawn trilogy that was released you know, a decade or two prior. In this case, there is something that happens in the Darth Plagueis novel that requires a particular type of weapon. And this story is essentially how do the people that use that weapon get their hands on that weapon. And that's pretty much it. And it's accompanied by a short story, The Cyrox Redemption, from the pages of, I believe it was Star Wars Insider 146. It's one with Boba Fett on the cover. Um, which is essentially, how did this particular creature in this book get there in setting up a book that is about how did the weapon get there? So it's sort of a, a Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon version of, hey, let's explain away something we didn't really need to explain away and give it a full story by itself. That being said... This is a much more entertaining book than the short story Buyer's Market was. Um, it gives us more insight into Maul's character, and it's very cool to see Maul around this time getting a lot more depth because he was coming back in the Clone Wars. We got this book. We got the new short stories in the reprint paperbacks with the same freaking ISBN number that made it so hard to find. Uh, and things like Shadowhunter and the uh, Phantom Menace novelization. But... It is an unusual story in that, for the most part during the story, Maul is not allowed to use his Force abilities. So if you expect him to be doing a whole lot of cool Maul dark side stuff, it's not happening through most of the book. And throughout the entire book, he does not have his double-bladed lightsaber with him. Which means if you're expecting some cool Maul double-bladed lightsaber action, you're not getting it in this book. There is a point at which he has a lightsaber but it is not the double-bladed lightsaber we know of as Maul's. It's very much Maul as a physical combatant throughout this book. Uh, not even a physical combatant necessarily enhanced by the dark side all that much. And it uses the maneuvering of both Plagueis and Sidious tying into the Darth Plagueis novel as sort of its way of tying things together. It also includes a connection to the Bounty Hunter video game, a story that takes place fairly soon after this novel and fairly soon uh, after the events of The Phantom Menace. So it's interesting to see the way it ties in. It is not an entirely standalone novel, but it's an unusual one in how it deals with Maul, and unusual in that it is tying in, but it does have that sort of, well, here's how we got this. You know, it's, a, it's like if I were watching Firefly, I don't need to necessarily know exactly where Mal got that particular gun, but it might be an interesting story to tell, right? Kind of the same type of thing that we're getting here. Uh, I would not necessarily put it on the must-read list, but it is definitely not one to avoid. Though where it has its flaws, those flaws are face-palming. The identity and species of the person um, that Maul is trying to find throughout the entire book is kind of ridiculous. And the first sequence of the book, the first scene that we get was hyped up like crazy. It's so why you always got those mm -hmm. little little promo images. Darth Maul versus a Yuzhan Bong. How awesome is that? And yeah, great, lovely, awesome. Why the hell is the Yuzhan Bong there? How does this affect any of the other Yuzhan Bong stuff? 
Where did he come from? Was he one of the far outsiders or something like that um, from Rogue Planet? Did he get separated off from the rest of his people? How is that Vong there? And how does it affect anything else? Answer, we don't know and none. He does a lot of gimmicky things where it seems like he was basically trying to look cool to Star Wars fans and make people go, oh, that's so awesome, even when it didn't make a lick of sense. So, decent novel, flawed, but certainly not one to avoid. For me moving into it, I, I usually don't care for that kind of mystery, uh, but I actually found the way that it was working, Joe's presenting of the story, it worked. I, I liked all the way up till I got to the end, and then I was kind of like, ah, I didn't deliver. You know, I mean, it was really building towards something that had me kind of kind of like, you know, biting my lip, wondering, you know, am I getting like a John Jackson Miller action here? Is this going to wrap up beautifully? And the ending left me feeling deflated. Um, I, in fact, I was I was searching the next page the, about the author page. Like, is that it? Really? That that's that's the end. Um, you know, the Radic character. I I enjoyed the Radic character, but I guess my problem with this book is is the way it ended because everything when we finally found out exactly who Radic was was a letdown. I liked the character right up until then. I was like trying to guess who he was. I I was always guessing wrong. I thought I had it down. There was a lot of aspects in that that was working. You know, I mean, Joe did a good job of keeping me enthralled. Where typically when I read that style of book, I get bored right away. I don't really – I want my answers. I don't want to have to hunt for it and have to try to remember something from the beginning of the book to maybe show up later in the book. You know, that kind of stuff usually doesn't capture my attention. This time it did, but again, the ending left me feeling wanting more. Uh, I originally, when this book first came out, thought this was going to be set after The Clone Wars. I thought that that would have been the better place to put it. I, you know, for me, I think sometimes the the problem here was more that they focused on that mission, like you said, that that ties into Darth Plagueis, when they should have been focusing more on Maul, the character. And I, I felt like for Maul, this story didn't do much. I mean, it it could have been, you know, saboteur. It could have been uh, the Shadow Hunter. I mean, it was no different in that regard than those stories. That there wasn't that much of an impact. So I was really hoping that we'd have got something, you know. When Plagueis or uh, when Sidious takes Maul away in season five of the Clone Wars, you know, you don't see he's like, I have plans for you. It would have been great to see him say, you know, you've got to go get this this weapon or something. You know, that's how you got to redeem yourself. Yeah, it wouldn't have tied into Darth Plagueis that way. But I think it would have worked better as a story. You'd had an opportunity. Maul's life would have actually been hanging in the balance because you didn't know what was going to happen. Especially if you read, you know, again, spoiler warning here uh, with with the quick one for Son of Dathomir. He's still alive. So, I mean, this could have fallen after that even. I mean, I would have been okay with that. Uh, there's aspects of that where I really kind of – I think that that might have tainted me in the end. But, again, I was enjoying the book all the way up till the end. So, even though I knew that it wasn't set where I thought it should have been, it worked. Between Maul and, and, and one of the characters that shows up later that he ends up fighting – she calls him out by name, and and that you know me and Nathan we were talking about it b before the show started. It, it really struck me because I was thinking, was there another story here that I don't know about that she knew him by name? I I thought it was really odd that she would go looking for Maul, not Jagannath, the name he was going under, or you know any other name. I mean, that was the weirdest part for me. I kept you know searching my mind, like was there something else? You know, did, had they ran into each other before? Because it seemed like there was a hate on there for each other, and I didn't quite get the why. You know, but the way it worked out was really cool. I mean, again, the ending failed in like the last chapter for me. I was all on board up until it ended. And I was just like, really, that's the end? Like I was expecting so much more still. And I was at that point, I was hooked. 
I was like, right on, you know, yeah, what's going to happen with these two? You know, I mean, and what was going on with the station? Now, you also, Nathan, mentioned those flyers, and that's something I, I think that's probably my biggest nitpick. Uh, you know, you see the flyers, and it's presented like a, uh, Plagueis and Sidious in a rule of two productions present, you know, it'd be Maul versus, you know, this or, or Maul versus a Yuzin Vong. And, and that, I think, you know, it had the aspect of the purge letters for Death Troopers and, and you know, we're trying to market it. We're trying to get its attention to the, the viewership, to the fandom. I get in that regard. It was kind of cool. But presenting it like it was an in-universe thing, like like I, Jedi or the Bounty Hunter Code or things like that. I felt like it was a fail across the board. Like you wouldn't be using names like Sidious and Plagueis and rule of two and throwing Maul out there and all this stuff. If you really wanted to hide yourself, I mean, that was just way too attention drawing. If that was an in-universe thing. Yeah, it's a minor nitpick, but Hey, you know, that's part of what I enjoy about the fandom is the depth of the world. And, and legends has always worked really hard at maintaining that kind of stuff. So seeing it presented as in-universe form, but yet having all those out of universe concepts and, and names and stuff was like, wow, I can't believe they did it like that. That was a fail. Uh, but when you mentioned the Vong, I mean, I think for me, I, I'm, I'm a little more less critical than you because I didn't read that part of the arc. Um, I did get the advanced review copy, but I wasn't able to get into it until after I had the finish proof and I jumped into the finish proof. So I didn't have that. Um, but I think, you know, how you read it, I think, you know, because I did go over it after I read that one scene to see the differences. And I could see, yeah, it's it's a big whoa moment. Uh, but without that, with the changes they made, I was able to get past it. I kind of I was kind of like, OK, well, maybe this was like somebody that got caught and then the, the masker died or, you know, maybe they uh, got caught without the masker. Uh, there were so many different options there. But at wait, one point, wait, what? What did they change? Well, they just changed who the, you know, they mentioned that it was uh, Vong. They mentioned the Amphistaff, uh, those little things. They, they took those references away. So at first you kind of had to put together that it was a Vong. Well, I mean, I don't think that they necessarily said, I don't recall whether they used the term Amphistaff. And I think, I think they did. And I think that's one of the things that I told them. Yeah. How is, how, how is someone going to know what this is? But it's still, I mean, it's not the, the narrator's use of the terminology that makes the difference. It's. You know, if, even if you've got it from the perspective of the other character being Maul, being able to sort of piece together, you know, this is a staff made of a serpent, blah, 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 and that sort of thing, it still doesn't explain where the Vong came from, why this had to be a Vong, and what was the big deal of promoting it of Maul versus a Vong as a big part mm -hmm. of this book. That Those failings don't disappear when you genericize, to use the word, turn generic, I guess, um the terminology used for the character. It's still a freaking Vong that shouldn't be there. Well, I mean, I guess because they toned it down, I was able to kind of put a backstory in my head. I mean, when we get to, yeah, when they get to the reveal later with uh, Dakariah, he's got something special going on. And when they do that, and you find out that it was actually him. I had the feeling then that that was the Vong's masker, that somehow he'd struck a deal or something. <laughs> but again, there, there, yeah, I guess it is a fail because, I had to fill in those back aspects of it. I mean, but it, it wasn't so major that I couldn't think of ways around it. Um, I mean, I guess it wasn't as bad as, as when in Death Troopers he left Han and Chewie without the Millennium Falcon at the end of the book. But there is that aspect, I, I would say, after reading three of Joe Schreiber's books, that I'm not caring for two out of three endings. <laughs> so I, I'm not a fan of endings that just seem to just stop. 
um, you know, it was okay with Buffy, uh, or, or not Buffy, but uh, Angel when they had the last episode of that and they go to war and they go running off fighting. I thought that was kind of cool. But in my books, it's not quite the same delivery. And, and I think that that was my biggest issue is the very last chapter, the way it ended. I was just, I was left wanting so much more. Yeah, I would say that that ending, it, it doesn't in such a way that it feels like it's setting up another adventure to come. It's setting up two characters to pair up in another conflict sometime in the near future, but we know that that is impossible because Maul winds up heading off into the Phantom Menace and is thought dead and winds up Spider-Boy for a while until he comes back in the Clone Wars, and by the time he comes back in the Clone Wars, the other character is dead thanks to a video game. So it's kind of a, wait, what are you doing? I mean, they're, they're setting up something that really gives you that sense that something new is coming, and it's not. And I get that at the time, for the characters, they wouldn't have known their demises were on the way. Yeah. But that also was something that sort of left it feeling flat. I will give credit, though, um, to Schreiber and to the folks at Del Rey when it came to this, because you were mentioning the, uh, the ARC, the uncorrected proofs copy that is sent out to reviewers. There were some things that were found that I found that were inconsistencies that I emailed to a couple of the people over at Del Rey. It was a, when they were switching the contact people over the book, so it was actually talking to both of them, and they fixed both of them. On page 317, uh, there was a point at which it said, pivoting easily, he swung out her. Should be out at her, but whatever. Uh, the dark side streaming so powerfully from him now that it seemed to be pouring forth in great explosive torrents. His blades were moving almost too fast to see, blah, 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 blah. Except he didn't have his double-bladed lightsaber, he had a single lightsaber. That is eventually fixed, the at is therefore swung out at her, and it says his blade was moving almost too fast to see. So they fixed that one, and then on 329, like the second-to-last page of the book, it says, uh, spinning, he dropped his hand to the hilt of his saber staff in the arc, and again, he doesn't have his double-bladed lightsaber with him, so they did fix it to spinning. He dropped his hand to the hilt of his lightsaber, the one that he acquires. And that's, it's cool that they fixed it. But I think that shows that there was sort of an inconsistency going on for Schreiber when he was writing, that all of a sudden the weapon just kind of shows up. Like he forgot that one of the big premises of his novel while writing it was that that weapon was absent the entire book. Uh, it just kind of appeared. And thankfully, they went back and fixed it, but it seems odd for the writer um, that he would have allowed that sort of thing into it, unless he was really, really rushing or something at the end. The thing I can really give him credit for, though, is working with Darth Plagueis, the novel. Mm -hmm. uh, there's some trickiness to how this all is going to fit in, but I was able to figure it out and bounce ideas off of Leland Chi. This is before the whole everything must go through the PR department crap started. Um, and basically, we were able to pin it down. Um, to reference the way this is discussed on the Star Wars Timeline Gold as a way of keeping my head straight here, um, I say on that document that the placement of the novel is tricky. It takes place over a relatively short period, which is helpful, but the timeline in the front of the novel and other contemporary ones puts it uh, in 33 BBY right after the listing for Darth Maul Shadowhunter. But that listing puts Shadowhunter in 33 BBY when it's actually in the first month of 32 BBY, in the teeny tiny bit of the year that comes before the Phantom Menace, since Phantom Menace is in uh, uh, year three, month four, uh, just in that little month there. 
The novel includes an overt reference to the assassinations on Iriadu near the end of Cloak of Deception as having already taken place. However, the story's concept is that this is how Sidious manages to get such and such an item into the hands of the such and such group, since we're still in the non-spoiler section, so that they and their allies can do such and such with it. As we see in chapter 26 of Darth Plagueis. Uh, fortunately, we can break chapter 26 of Darth Plagueis up into its three sections. The first portion has Maul at the Lemurge factory, considering how Palpatine is on his way to Iriadu for the summit in Cloak of Deception, meaning that we're still before chapter 26 of Cloak of Deception, which is when Palpatine arrives. The second portion of chapter 26 of Darth Plagueis has Palpatine taking a detour to Naboo, which sets the stage for what happens later in the chapter, in the third portion. That third portion is the event itself that ties back into lockdown. Uh, and the next chapter, 27, has Palpatine back on Coruscant after those particular events. So in order for Maul Lockdown to refer to the assassination of the Directorate in the past tense, have Palpatine be contacting Maul from Coruscant, not Iriadu, and have the necessary thing from lockdown be the one used in the latter part of that chapter, then the assassinations in Cloak of Deception have to take place in the gap on page 305 of the hardback of Darth Plagueis, followed immediately thereafter by Lockdown, and then the rest of that chapter of Darth Plagueis. Um, but it does mean that Lockdown can't take place after Shadowhunter in the way that it's listed in the novel's timeline at the front of the book. Uh, it's logically impossible. Um, so if you have the Darth Plagueis hardback, and you get to the break between the three different sections of chapter 26 on page 305, uh, and you're about to read the section that begins, the transpirator affixed to his face, Plagueis moved with agile purpose, blah, blah, blah. Stop there. Read Lockdown. Because Lockdown is the explanation for what is about to happen. Although, honestly, it is done so lightly handed in Lockdown, there's never a sense of what it's going to be used for, what this thing Maul is to acquire is going to be used for, that I actually missed it. After I finished reading the book, I was like, so what's the deal? And somebody had to point out to me, oh, that's the thing that's used in this part of Darth Plagueis. Um, it is not, apparently, an obvious thing. Uh, I would also note that this book gives a new dating system. It says that Maul's date for entry into Cog Hive 7, that's the, the prison place where he is, um, is uh, 0110221124 which is apparently a meaningless number that has no relevance to any dating systems we already know and has no context to it. So, congratulations, uh, Schreiber. He has now created a whole new dating system in the Star Wars galaxy that makes no sense and never gets an explanation. Odd. Odd stuff. But at least we know when the novel takes place now, and they are dealing with errors in the book. We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Now consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentience of All Ages, because here we go on another adventure beyond the films. This, like I said, is definitely an odd novel. Um, primarily the idea is this. Uh, Sidious is wanting to manipulate his allies, like King Varuna and such, in the Darth Plagueis novel into attacking and trying to kill Darth Plagueis. And that attack is going to involve a proscribed, i.e. illegal, nuclear device. And in order for that to happen, Sidious is essentially maneuvering to get just such a nuclear device 
into the hands of one of the factions that together will pull off that attack. Uh, the faction in question being the Bandogora, who of course show up in the Bounty Hunter video game, and the Bandogora at this point is led by uh, former Padawan to Dooku, or former uh, uh, knight who looked up to Dooku, Kamari Vosa. And uh, the idea here is that in order to get this, he needs to put Maul in contact with Iram Radic, who is this reclusive, possibly even non-existent, only legendary arms dealer, who is based out of Cog Hive 7. It's this space station prison place where uh, two of the individuals aboard, uh, Dakari and uh, Siddiqui, uh, is this brother and sister, have sort of arranged for it to be not just a prison, but also a gaming locale, because they have the ability to sort of switch around the configuration of the station, and they have this computer system designed to do that by matching up different prisoners and their skills and strengths and whatnot to pit them together into basically death matches. And uh, so you'd hear an alarm go off, and all these prisoners who all have these explosives embedded in their hearts in case they try to refuse to do it, um, has to run back to their cells. The cells all rearrange, and a couple of them will be lined up together so that when the doors open, those two prisoners are facing each other, and they are the death match. And this is all recorded and broadcast so that people from around the galaxy, uh, who are into sort of the shadier side of gambling, can gamble on what's going to happen. And in order to keep the funds coming in for the, the prison, Siddiqui has the system pop out odds and then places bets on behalf of the station itself. Doesn't rig the fights, but places bets based on what the computer thinks is going to be the victor and uses that to, to rake in the cash, essentially. Although that has started to get uh, uh, the attention of those who oversee gambling in the galaxy, the commissioner's office and such, uh, and there is the possibility of them coming down on her head about how some of the, bat, the, the bouts recently have been turning out and how the computer system is allowing them to still win, essentially when the, the prison gambles, although people watching are kind of shocked sometimes at how the outcome works. Uh, it becomes Maul's job, under the name of Jagannath, uh, to essentially be in the prison and see if he can figure out a way to contact Radic, who's apparently there sort of... Uh, undercover, in a sense. He winds up working in part with Zero, who is a Twi'lek, or we think is a Twi'lek, uh, who appears to have some line on Radic in some form or another and gets all kinds of special treatment. We will find later that that's actually the brother of the two running the place, uh, Dakari, actually there somehow in disguise as a very convincing Twi'lek um, to do what he's doing, sort of serve two masters, serve his sister, and serve Radic. Um, See, that's that's where I thought he was wearing the masker from the Vong. That was why I thought that's probably why they brought the Vong in, so they could have the masker. But there was nothing so. to support that. <laughs> yeah, I would hope that that was what it was supposed to be, but there, I didn't ever see anything that, that claimed that it was. It just seemed like it was just a regular mask. It just happened to be a very good one. Yeah. Um, along the way, you have Maul have to essentially tame a couple of different prison gangs to get them to work for him, face off with some of the corrections officers, um deal with this uh, this wolf worm, the Cyrox, that is through a, a, this huge sort of nasty giant worm that eats things. It has like a collective hive mind made up of the, the minds of all the beings that it has eaten over the years that uh, we saw come to the station back in the Cyrox Redemption, that short story from Insider. Um, and eventually, he, of course, he does wind up getting the weapon. 
He's helped along at different points and hindered at different points by uh, Vesto Silfer, who is an agent of the intergalactic banking clan sent by Hego Damask slash Darth Plagueis to sort of uh, control the situation and find out exactly what it is that Sidious is having Maul do somewhat behind Plagueis' back. It's like Sidious has told him some of the plan, though not necessarily all of it. Plagueis expects at different points that, well, you know, if the mission is a failure, then it's time for Maul to die with everything else because he's trying to sort of clear the decks of Maul as a potential uh, rival to turn Sidious and Maul into the two Sith and remove Plagueis, which of course will happen during the Phantom Menace thanks to the Dark Plagueis novel. Um, we eventually will find that the uh, uh, that Radic is actually a Chiss for some freaking reason. Um, and we will find that uh, with the help of Kamari Vosa, who arrives during a hut attack uh, on the gambling establishment, uh, they are able to get that nuclear device to the Bandogora. Probably the most interesting characters throughout, though, aren't really Maul or any of them. Instead, it's Eogen and Artigan, this father and son pair, uh, Artigan being the father, Eogen being the son, um, who at one point worked with Radic, who has a, a really a great hatred for the Bandogora because of an attempt on his life, which is part of why Maul needs to be there to kind of push this to happen and be an intermediary. Um, and it's sort of the story of how they wound up there stuck, supposedly to go work for Radic. Uh, Artigan refused to do what was necessary to work for Radic, which includes having your eyes gouged out to work and not be able to tell what you've seen. Um, and they've just kind of been stuck there ever since. And he's wanting to try to save his son's life, uh, somehow get his son or them both off of Coghive 7 and back into the galaxy at large, and they think their best hope at different points throughout the story is Maul. So there's a lot of things going on. It's a very complex story. I'm just not sure that by the time it's done, it was a story that, that had hit all the notes in a satisfactory fashion. It's, there were points that felt weak that sort of bring down the overall structure of the tale that, for the most part, was strong throughout. Yeah, it was definitely strong. I mean, that was that was where I was at. I mean, I could tell that there were aspects of this book that normally would not appeal to me, and the way that Joe wrote it was appealing to me. I mean, it did have a gritty feel. Uh, you know, they they did market it somewhat as a horror movie, not a horror movie, but as a horror novel. But I liked the way that when we get those scenes and stuff, it really worked. I mean, he he drew the depth of what was going on and stuff, the way he described, you know, the movements of the people, the way the actions happen, things like that. Uh, though at times I found myself wondering if the book shouldn't have just been called The Hive or just Hive. Uh, you know, lockdown doesn't seem so much apt to what was going on in the story. The only time they had a lockdown was right before the battles. It was Cog Hive 7. And then you also had the wolfworm that had its hive mind, which presented an interesting threat as well. I mean, there were moments there where I was like, whoa, is this thing like the, the Talzin or whatever it was called? That worm on Coruscant that you couldn't feel in the forest because this thing could sneak up on people. And I liked the way that that worked out and stuff. And there was a, a, a one of the corrections officers named Smite. Um, it was kind of cool because he kind of showed up in the middle of the story. And I mean, it was a, it was an interesting off turn because this is point of view kind of comes to a conclusion not too long into it uh, but one thing i do like about schreiber's books is, is the chapters are short so while it seems overwhelming at like 73 chapters they're really short chapters so you're flying right through them so that was kind of cool too and i think that that's probably why i was really enjoying the pacing of the book because the chapters were all small enough and it just moved me along just enough that i i never got kind of bound into anything there have been other books where i've just been scratching my head too much i mean uh 
you know, take a Shatterpoint, for example, did, did something kind of similar to this with the, what's going on on the planet, you know, and I didn't care for that one as much as I did this one. And even with the way it ended, the overall story that was told was still a good story. I still enjoyed that. There were, like Nathan said, the fact that, that Radek was a chiss were head scratching moments. Like you're, you're a guy that no one really knows who you are. They all say you're a myth. And yet at the end, you're one of the most obvious, most recognizable species. If you'd be seen if, because I say if, because at this point of you know reference, there are very few chiss ever seen. So, I mean, I guess in that regard, it, maybe it's, it's easier to hide because no one's seen the chiss, but, I would think blue skin and bright red eyes would kind of be like, a, oh, yeah, Radic, yeah, you know that one guy with the blue, the Smurf dude. Yeah. And that's that's the thing. For the Yuzhan, basically, beginning and end, he bookends this story with ridiculous species. He starts the story with a Yuzhan Vong with absolutely no logical reason for him to be there. Because, I mean, take, you can say, well, you know, Rogue Planet had the Far Outsiders and all that kind of stuff. So did he get detached from that? I mean, Rogue Planet, the novel, takes place a little while after The Phantom Menace. But maybe there's some connection to that group. Or maybe this is something where they're going to say that he was possibly tied in. You may remember the uh, uh, there's a Marvel story, Pliff, which is turned into the little read-along book, Planet of the Hoojibs. And how they said that the, the I think it's called the Slivolith or something like that, Slivolith. Um, the creature inside that was supposed to be some kind of like long-range uh, bio-weapon-ish scout vesselish thing for the Yuzhan Vong. It was later uh, retconned. You know, maybe he was somehow tied to that mission or something, but just sort of this weird mm-hmm. question of, where's the Vong come from? And then you get the fact that, that supposedly Thrawn was supposed to be this unusual character because nobody knew who the heck he was. It was such a weird thing. He was a Chiss. We don't know anything about the Chiss. We need to find out more about, Va- that, about Thrawn's people. And in the time of Thrawn, right before and right after him, for the most part, in the in the continuity, there's that level of mystery. But it's like they've t- taken that mystery and flushed it in recent years. Because you've got, uh, not only do you have the mystery about Thrawn, sure, but alongside that you have the bizarre, well, during the time of the Old Republic uh, MMO, yeah, there's Chiss running around as if it's no big thing. Or, oh yeah, by the way, Clone Wars Secret Missions, um, mm-hmm. we've got, squadron. yeah, we've got Breakout Squad, that's got a young Chiss Padawan working with them. And granted, same kind of thing. There's some mystery about that Padawan and his people. But then he winds up running into the uh, to, to member a, a representative from the Chiss Ascendancy and all this. And it's just sort of the the mystery around Thrawn's time seems like a form of collective amnesia by the time it happens now. Because they're just constantly having Chiss show up just because, hey, having a Chiss show up would be cool. Well, yeah, but it doesn't make logical story sense. And this is another example of that. You know, like I said, who is he? He better have been wearing the masker that came from that Vong if there was a masker. Because if anybody sees him, he's blue with bright red eyes. Unless that, and not seeing his operation, is why he winds up having the eyes gouged out of most of the people that work for him. If it's a, well... I'm so recognizable, like a demon smurf, that I don't want people to be able to recognize me, so I'm going to have your eyes cut out. But it just, it seems odd, especially since he was acting out in the galaxy at large before he came to Kong Hive 7. It's not like his race or his species changed between those activities and coming to the prison. So here's yet another instance of someone who's supposedly this big figure 
who is a chiss, and yet nobody knows who the chiss are. You know, there's it just it it doesn't ring true. Same thing with the Vong. He if well, he had if he had done it differently, make him a different make Radic a different species and make it not a Vong at the beginning. Put the Wampa fight or something at the beginning instead of the Vong. And a lot of my complaints about how it seems like he was just doing stuff to do something cool would be totally gone. You make me think of something though. I mean, Yoda species still isn't known, and everybody in the galaxy is okay with that. So I mean, I, I've got to put that into perspective as well. So maybe for Radic, that could be the same situation. I know with the Vong, I would have loved for them well, to say, you know, maybe on. this guy was picked up over in that sector of space where eventually Rogue Planet would happen or something like that. Give a reason as to where he came from, but. But is is Yoda's species unknown to the galaxy or unknown to us? Because well, it's, that's the question. It's been <laughs> unnamed within the Star Wars continuity, but nobody ever makes a big deal about the fact that Yoda and Yaddle were of a species that you don't tend to see much of. Vandar Tokari, I think, was his name back in the Knights of the Old Republic era, was of that species, and nobody made a big deal that nobody knows what his species is. It's unknown to us. The Chiss were supposed to be unknown to the galaxy at large for the most part, and yet they're here. I would have been fine with Radic being Yoda's species more than him being a Chiss, because at <laughs> least there wasn't a designed mystery around that species in-universe that we know of. That would have been something, though, I gotta admit. That would be... Maybe Her that was it right out. there. Joe was like, you know, I, I had... It was gonna be Yoda's species, and George was like, no, I'm not gonna tell you. I don't care that I split canon. That's staying with me. I do like the idea of the, the, the deathmatch type of thing. This is something that you see uh, uh, in the way that you hear stories about actual prisons in some cases, but especially uh, darker prison tales in fiction. The idea of prisons becoming a hotbed for violence and the people running them turning that violence to their own advantage, in a sense. Um, that you essentially have deathmatches all over the place. Mortal Kombat! <laughs> kind of stuff going on within this prison to give it that extra sense of dread. And it's not really so much a sense of dread for Maul, because you know Maul's going to survive. But some of his opponents and the way the fights go down leave you wondering what's going to happen for his mission, which is cool. Um, there's, a, there's a point at which he thinks that one of the people that he's fighting is Radic, uh, or is the one to lead him to Radic. I forget, it's been a while. Um, uh, and it winds up having to kill him. Uh, and the only clue he gets from them is essentially a message scrawled on the floor in blood. But uh, he thinks that he may have just failed his mission by killing the one person who could lead him to what he needs to know. Uh, that type of thing gives you a sense of dread for Maul, plus it constantly complicates Maul's situation, because here he's trying to do his mission, and because he is the reigning champion, so to speak, with all his battles, he's constantly being thrown into combat. And then it actually gives you a real sense of dread and sense of fear for what's going to happen to the other characters, to Ardigan, who is supposed to be kept out of this by an arrangement, and Eogan, the, the son. And will the son be ready when he finally starts being paired up with others to do these types of battles. You know, has the father taught the son well enough? Uh, the son thinks so, but the father thinks he's woefully unprepared, which is part of why he's trying to get him out of there. So they're able to populate this story with characters that are, not sure likable is the right word, but somewhat relatable to give you a sense of fear for what's going to happen to them, even with Maul there, 
But unlike what he did with Death Troopers, where you had that sense of dread for the new characters, but never really a sense of dread for Han and Chewie, Maul has a specific mission, specific goals, and a specific mystery he's trying to solve, and at every turn there are impediments in his way that seem like they could derail that, so you even feel a sense of fear for what's going to happen with Maul, not of him dying, but of him failing. Um, In that sense, it takes it a step up from what we got with Death Troopers in terms of the use of a pre-established character in a story where most of the real danger is to the new characters introduced just in that book. Yeah, yeah, okay. I'm going to bring this up just because I I think we should probably move away from the Vong stuff. But you'd mentioned already the fact that that we found out that one of the characters was the brother and that was zero. And when we found that out, it was in chapter 50 behind the mask. And I, I loved the way that played out, you know, at the time you got zero going, you idiot. The twilight said spitting blood. You think this is going to solve anything? Maul didn't answer. He drove his fist into zero's chin and to his great surprise, he felt the inmates entire face shiver and go sideways, his flesh appearing to split open and then peel back with a gelatinous suddenness. So unexpected that Maul stopped his attack and stared down at him. That, the way that's described, I mean, I, I've been a huge New Jedi Order fan, so that just screamed Oogleth Masker, you know, which again, I mean, if that was the intended case, I could follow that. Logically, okay, that's why the Vong was there, but I'm with you. They should have given a reason or, or a background as to, you know, where this guy was picked up and, and he happened to have this other creature on him that they just didn't know what to do with it and it managed to disappear. You know, I mean, like, they could have filled something in there because I felt like it was intended for that yeah it's it's the old you know if you're gonna put the shotgun on the wall in act one you better make sure you use it by act two act three or so but it still doesn't necessarily give an in-universe reason for the vong being there yeah it gives a story reason why to have him there if you're gonna need the masker to be the camouflage technology but there are other camouflage technologies in star wars that could very easily have been used uh, been using been used for this um in particular, I'm thinking, seeing as how this is being written in conjunction with the stuff going on in the Clone Wars, I'm thinking about the ability to stick something inside Obi-Wan's face that turns him into Racco Hardeen. Mm, um, true. You know, it's it's one of those things where it made sense why you needed a Vong, possibly, if you're going to have the Masker be it, though you didn't need it to necessarily be a Masker. But at the same time, you're still not explaining why the Vong is there. I mean, we could just as easily have had a character show up out of nowhere that tosses Maul his double-bladed lightsaber so he can use it in the combat sequences. That's lovely and all, but then you had to explain where that character came from and why. Yeah, which which I think that's where I got perturbed with Vosa. When Vosa shows up and she's looking for Maul, I mean, you explained that that Maul was, was mentioned to her as that's the operative, but I'm like, why wouldn't they say Jagannath? I mean, he's there, he's told not to reveal his identity and all this stuff, and yet then Vosa's looking for him and calling him Maul. Granted, I could see that as a, as a reason for him to want to fight her or something, but yeah, when, when they started fighting, I kept scratching my head going, okay, did I miss something? Is there is there more to Vos's character? And at this moment, I'm going to turn to you, Nathan. I'm going to ask you to give us a quick, you know, what is the story with Vosa up to this point? What did we know and that kind of stuff? Because I, I really don't know much beyond the fact that, that there was connection to Dooku. They said that she was the Padawan. But I don't remember much about her. I mean, I remember her showing up in the Bounty Hunter game, but that was so long ago that I don't even remember the context in which she was brought up in that. Well, she was, as I recall, she was a Padawan. Uh, She was not yet ready to face the Jedi Trials and may never have been because she was said to sort of not be living up to expectations. 
She's with Dooku at the Battle of Galadran. That's the big one with the, the true Mandalorians and all uh-huh. that stuff um, that we see in Jango Fett Open Seasons. And then later, after all this stuff has happened, uh, she's no longer the Padawan of Dooku. I'm assuming she's officially passed her trials or she just is no longer his Padawan for some reason. But she winds up being sent with a group of Jedi to Baltazar to fend off attacks from the Bando Gora. And basically, they're all believed dead, essentially. But Kamari Vosa instead has joined the Bando Gora and winds up becoming their leader and then winds up entering into this secret pact with Gardula the Hutt uh, and a Doug named uh, Sebolot, I believe is how you say it. I'm looking at my own Star Wars timeline goal to keep this all straight. Um, to, con- to distribute death sticks that have been contaminated, which becomes sort of her in into the uh, Bounty Hunter video game. But at this point, she's a leader of the Bando Goro. We know her as the failed or lost Padawan of Dooku, which is one of the many things said to have caused Dooku to become disenchanted with the Jedi Order so that when Qui-Gon Jinn dies, it's the last straw and he leaves. Assuming that's even still the story. It certainly is within Legends, but of course, as we looked at Season 6 of The Clone Wars, certain episodes in there make a heck of a lot more sense if it turns out, like the Lost One, if it turns out that Dooku was actually a Sith prior to The Phantom Menace, um, just acting covertly somehow. But this was one of those last straws that supposedly in Legends continuity pushes him away. Watch this, Master. I'm going to act all offended that my mass, my Padawan has gone to the dark side. <laughs> you know, getting to the aspect of how Joe kind of grabs you. Chapter 56, it's uh, 12 by 18. And at this point, you know, the warden has turned the prison against Maul. And I love the way that the prison has that interchangeable, can, can transform to any kind of configuration she wants. I mean, she'll later use it to allow some members of the gangs to attack the correctional officers that are working for Jabba. Great scene as well. But in this one, like you were saying, Nathan, about how the failure to Maul's mission kind of gets to you. And I felt, I mean, this was one of those where you were like gasping for breath at the same time. It says, he fixed his gaze straight up. The hatch itself, an unremarkable 12 by 8 centimeter rectangle, had become his entire world, 12 by 18. And in the end, it represented the difference between completing his mission and perishing in shame and obscurity. Silver, Radic, the Cupus. He clenched his teeth, the heat very close to him now, pressing in from all sides, clinging him, clinging to him like a second skin. By now, the walls had become scalding steel plates, burning the palm of his hand and the fingers holding him in place. Inside of his mouth felt cool by comparison. A drop of sweat hit the floor and he realized that he could actually hear it sizzle. If the temperatures kept going up like this, he guessed he might have another minute or two before he blacked out from heat prostration. And then he kept working. There was an odd, meaty smell rising up around him and his blistering palm shifted slightly on the wall. He realized that it was own flesh beginning to roast. Master, I will not fail. He breathed in and out. An odd narcotic dizziness that started to take hold of him, and he reached down deep into whatever remaining of his consciousness and forced himself to focus. He needed to find Eogan. He could just... All at once, the hatch popped open. And I mean, at that moment, I'm just like, holy cow! I mean, like, the room I was sitting in started to feel hotter. <laughs> like, man, this is really getting to me here. I, I love the way Joe describes things. I mean, I would love to have seen a Joe Schreiber take on the New Jedi Order. Yeah, he's good at giving that sense of dread. That's one of the things that Death Troopers, and especially Red Harvest, did well that this book does well. It cre- He creates suspense. You know, even if it's something where you sort of expect things to turn out a certain way, 
the suspense is there for that particular scene, for that particular moment. Um, I will also say, though, one of the things he does that's somewhat interesting here is he, the, the reasoning behind why the thing is shifting so much and why she's turning things against Maul and everything, um, they introduce another player into this mix. One of the things that the Sith do is manipulate so many different pieces on the board at a time that it seems as though a lot of the time, it's like, wow, how could they have possibly done that? They are Thrawn-esque, to use another Chiss reference here, in being able to manipulate different pieces, and it seems like they do it to a spectacular degree of success most of the time. This time, there's the unaccounted-for aspect. There's Jabba the Hutt and the DeSilogic clan, because they're tired of, of the gambling operations here, cutting in on their profits, so while Maul's in the midst of his mission, the Hutts attack. And the response to this and trying to essentially uh, salvage the situation whenever Siddiqui is ambushed with her uh, corrections officers by the huts when uh, a barge is arriving. And how cool is it that one of the barges we see arrive in this story is the Purge yeah. right from Death Troopers um, with no other relation other than it just happens to be the prison barge Purge. Um, you wind up with this battle going on during which she essentially sets the system to reconfigure so many times in so many ways so quickly. It's going to just, just destroy the station itself. During which, that's when the wolf worm, that big creature, enters the fray and really becomes a massive threat. So it's sort of one of these things where, you know, if Maul's job wasn't hard enough, now here's another thing thrown into the mix. And with two different Sith Lords trying to manipulate this situation with two different ends... To have them come in and actually wind up threatening to undo the work of both sides makes for some interesting conflict. I think that that was a necessary element to this thing. Just having Maul going up against the prison guards and the mystery of finding Radic, I don't think would ever have given us that sense of, of chaos and menace and suspense that we get when the Huts enter the fray. Because they are the real wild card here, just destructive. In almost every respect. Even when the Bando Goras show up with Kamari Vosa, and she winds up there to, you know, pick up the weapon and everything, and she's working alongside Maul at different points uh, when he's using the lightsaber that he... he it, basically, Radic is trying to create, new, like, knockoff lightsabers, and he can't quite get it right, but Maul knows how to get it right, so he's able to fix one of them and use it, and promises fixing the other ones as a way of um, basically getting Radic to give him the weapon and all that. But uh, when even when they're fighting together... That didn't seem to add a whole lot more suspense into the mix. It's just, oh, she's there to pick up the weapon. I wonder what Kamari is going to do here. But she's another character we know has to survive, so whatever. But the Huts, they really threw it into chaos and added a, a ratcheting up of suspense that needed to be there. Oh, yeah, I love that. And the Wolf Worm, I mean... When they first introduced the one room in the warden's chamber where her brother had all the sound and stuff shut off, I didn't quite understand why, but when they get to the end and you find out that that's her death scene is in that room, I just love the way that played out. You know, the wolf worm's coming at her and she's been blinded and she can't hear anything at this point. And that was all she was relying on was her hearing. Uh, and I remember thinking at that point that, you know, whatever blinded her had, had gotten to her ears and taken out her hearing. And then you realize dun, 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 that her brother's system had been activated. And you're like, mm -hmm. oh, you are hosed. That was helpless. You know, in space, no one can hear you scream. Except, of course, in Star <laughs> Wars, there's sound in space. We can hear the ships and the blast and everything. So how do you do in space, no one can hear you scream? In this room, no one can hear you scream. And yeah, that was one of the creepier aspects of this. Her 
knowing the wolf worm is coming for her, not knowing which way to go or to move because she's basically in this sensory deprivation type of room. It was one of the cooler aspects of it. And so were, speaking of others that deal with the wolf worm at different points, uh, so were the gangs. Maul yeah. gets to use sort of his own Sith manipulation, which we don't usually see a lot from him as a strategist uh, until some of the more recent stories. Maul gets to be the one here who manipulates the two gangs, changes their leadership, gets them to work for him, all under the auspices of making them even angrier at the uh, corrections officers and at, at one point their own leaders. And he's able to use both of these. They're the Bone Kings and the Gravity Massive. And the Bone Kings are known for, well, killing someone, taking their bones, and turning them into weapons. Uh, we also get an interesting <laughs> character, a little, um, this little Chadra fan named Coil, who works with Zero, seems to work for Radic, and so does this Aqualish named Rook. That's the one I was thinking of earlier where he's in the fight, where I was thinking that it was uh, uh, his one thing to try to get to, to Radic and all, where the suspense was up. But Coil yeah. basically makes sculptures out of bones and i guess that's meant to be very macabre but for some reason that to me never made me go or anything like that it was just sort <laughs> of a yeah whatever sort of thing uh and the bones in many cases are brought by these birds that's another of the elements that made me go what because yeah radic is using the this flock of birds to carry things back and forth, to carry some of his orders, and it's by realizing that that's who the birds work for and where they're going that Maul is able to follow them to find the workstation that radic has been hiding this entire time and just... What? Yeah, that was hard to follow. It just seemed odd. I mean, I guess he was kind of going for maybe something like the end of the dark half or something with the birds all being this huge flock that are meant to kill and all this stuff, but, but <laughs> the birds thing was another of these angles that made me sort of think, what is he doing? Um, there could have been other ways to have him find Radic or other ways to be able to, uh, to say, here's why the birds are under control, that's why he could be found. But it was just an odd thing of, uh, well, what's going to finally be the thing that gives up the location of Radic? Well, it's not Coil, and, and it's not these people that were trying to work for him, and it's, it's not even the blind dudes who are building the weapons for him and stuff. It's a flock of birds. That Maul, out of nowhere, decides, hey, I'm going to chase him. So, yeah, there's, there's, there's that other angle of, of oddity here. It's the kind of visage, I think, that you would see in horror books, which makes sense for him to use the flock of evil birds. But from a Star Wars perspective and looking at this as a Star Wars tale, it left me sort of shaking my head. Yeah, there were some other moments, though, that I really enjoyed. Uh, again, one of those ones that tied into Plagueis uh, was Chapter 63, The Sojourn. And I like it because it, it kind of gives you that sense that Plagueis is starting to realize that Sidious is uh, starting to do other things. He's talking to D4, his droid, which I love D4, by the way, just side note there. And, you know, he goes, As you know, I have extended a great deal of latitude to Lord Sidious in the past. Especially now, as we approach the pivotal moment in our plans for Palpatine's impending chancellorship, I find it, his increasing tendency towards self-reliance to be disturbing. Of course, the time will come. I will let him know that I was the one who provided Iram Radic with the fully functional geological compressor that he needed. 
and thus allowed Maul to complete his mission. But at the moment of relevance is not yet ripe. And it was kind of interesting because it's like, you know, in, in a way he just sealed his own death or, or not. Well, in a way he sealed his own impending attempt assassination, I should say. <laughs> Yeah, I like the fact that in trying to one-up Sidious, he basically one-ups himself. He didn't quite know what it was that Sidious was planning with that weapon, but he was basically just trying to show that, you know, see, you couldn't complete your mission without me, Maul couldn't complete his mission without me, I am still superior, you are still inferior, so don't you try to get all uppity, Sidious. Well, another another weird thing about Radic was that it, it seemed like they kept drawing it out. You know, from the beginning, you were always like, "Who's Radic? You know, what's Radic?" And you know, when you get to that one point when he's fighting the weak way, you think that's Radic. You know, and then then it's like, "Okay, Radic dies. The crows are coming from all, and oh, they think he's the new Radic." And you're just like, "What's going on?" And then you're like, "Is Zero Radic? Who in the hell is Radic?" You know, I was so confused that by the time we got to that that final, oh, he's a Chiss, it, it did feel kind of very out left field. It kind of threw me off. Uh, but when we got to that point at the end where Radic's demise came down, the way it goes down was brilliantly done. I, I like the fact that, you know, not only has the warden triggered all the heart bombs and everybody, and they're starting to drop off and stuff. And I mean, even Radic mentions it to, to, uh, to Yogan, you know, he's like, you should be up anytime, you know? And all of a sudden, you know, you hear this jagged thump and he looks over and Yogan just dropped dead. You know, you're just like, Oh my gosh. And, then as everything's going down, Radic and Maul are fighting and stuff, and he's like, suit yourself. Radic leveled the blaster at his face. Then I'll take it off your corpse. And he's talking about the lightsaber. Maul saw his grip tighten on the weapon. The knuckles constricting visibly behind the trigger guard and heard a sudden grunt as the boy sprang up from the floor and threw himself at Radic. The arms dealer hadn't seen him coming from that angle, and Eogan was fast enough to knock him flat, holding him on the floor while he groped for the blaster, twisting it around in his hand. No! Reddick snarled, trying to elbow him off and push him away without releasing the blaster. No! No! The boy didn't bother wasting his breath, nor did he even try to take the weapon away from Reddick. Jaw set, lips clamped tight, his bloody eyes fixed on the task at hand. Yogan simply kept twisting the blaster until Maul heard the bones in Reddick's wrists crack until the barrel was pointing straight up at his face, and then it went off in a single blinding flash. Radic's head jerked sideways and disappeared in the cloud of blood and cranial matter that evacuated itself across the wall behind him. His corpse slumped sideways into a sagging pile, and the boy, pulling himself away from it, then drawing himself upward into a standing position, wiped his hands on his pants. He drew a long, shuddering breath. So now, he turned them all, I guess we're even. And I, I don't know, that was, that was cool just to see how Radic went out. And I love the final, the finality of it all, but it was cool for Yogan's character because, you know, his dad didn't believe in him. Everyone there didn't believe in him. So, I mean, in a, in a subtle way, it was kind of like, it was his story. You know, I mean, it was his coming of age tale wrapped hidden in this story about Maul. I, I just thought that was a really cool moment, you know, that he was able to overcome everything. And, and you find out that his dad or, or the droid had, had done something to him. And that was why that the bomb didn't go off. And and there's another scene, too, where, where Vosa does something similar to Maul, where she's like, you know, I, I, I'm a force practitioner and I can take care of you and, and take it out. And that was another cool, interesting scene. Like, who's it going to work? I mean, you knew it was going to. But I, again, getting to Vosa, though, with Maul, when we have the fight, when they start fighting that it threw me off because I was trying to figure out why they were fighting. I'm like, aren't they working at, 
for the same goal here. You know, that's another one of those things where it would have been nice to have a little more depth behind what was going on with Bosa. You know, maybe she had instructions to meet, you know, so-and-so or, or, cause I don't know, just, I was under the impression that she knew Maul was there and she wanted to kill Maul. And it was like, wait, is that, is that, was that what she was ordered to do was to show up and kill the guy that had the thing and take it? Because I was, I, cause it seemed like Maul had sent out the request for them to show up and, there, something there I got lost with that because I never quite understood why Vosa wanted to kill him so bad. I kept thinking, gosh, is there a story I'm missing? Remember, Maul's the one also who was thinking about killing her because of the thought of her being a Jedi. He knows it's a Force user, and it's only after he sees her in action that he really realizes, oh, you know, this is not a Jedi that I'm dealing with. She's something different at this point. Um... With her and him, it's cool to see them finding together. It's cool to see Kamari Bosa get really any kind of story presence. Because in the other stories she's been in, she tends to be in the background of certain stories, except for Bounty Hunter, in which case you're trying to kill her because you're playing as Django Fett throughout. Uh, but it's definitely an oddity the way they wrap things up with her. Because they're on the ship. Okay? Uh, they, they have managed to get themselves aboard a ship that essentially has been provided by... Uh, it's, it's the Star Jewel, essentially been provided by Jabba the Hutt because he wasn't going to try to stop them when they came to to commandeer it, essentially, and trying to escape from everything. And uh, uh, as he's heading away, uh, they're having a conversation. He and it's it's him and Kamari and Eogan who's managed to to get out of there as well. And uh, she says. He worships you, speaking of Eogan. He worships you, you know, the boy. What you saw you do back there? The galaxy will harden him soon enough, if it doesn't kill him first. Perhaps you should take him with you, as an apprentice. What would you know about apprentices? Nothing. I don't need to know the details of your mission on Coghive 7. I know that your mission there was in service to a sovereign purpose far beyond yourself, as was yours. Perhaps that's so. And then here's the kicker. Yet when I look at you and the way that you and I fought that worm together, I can't help but wonder, don't. I only meant to say, we're neither of us the people that we once were. Who's to say where we might end up? And, you know, Maul kind of gives up on, on the whole idea, but you definitely have a sense that they were setting up the chances for them to meet again and have an adventure together and possibly be able to someday be partners. And again, as much as it's cool and it fits what the characters know of the situation at this point in time, it feels weird reading that as someone who's reading this book in 2014 when it's been, what, over a decade since we know the death of Kamari Vosa, and it's been since Phantom Menace when we thought Maul was dead, and it's just been a few years since we realized that Maul wasn't dead during the interim between Phantom Menace and the Clone Wars, but he was Spider-Maul, and there's no way that he could have spent time with Vosa. It's an odd thing to try to set up if you know that's what's going to happen. Unless they're going for, he's going for sort of the irony or the, uh, or the possible dark humor that could come of that. Like telling a story in which you've got, I don't know, JFK, you know, talking to a character and saying, you know, we'll meet again, only it's the very first day of November 1963, and he's saying, you know, I'll meet you in a few months. When, of course, we know that he's going to be assassinated later in the same month. It's it's an odd way of wrapping it up. Um, although I do think one way that they could have, could have launched it off more nicely 
uh, launched off in a way that was very fitting, given my consternation over the whole clawbird thing. Um, you could add like a little girl, uh, say like a young teen or something, talking about how people once believed that when someone dies, a clawbird carries their soul to the land of the dead. But sometimes <laughs> something so bad happens that a terrible sadness is carried with it, and the soul can't rest. And sometimes, just sometimes, the clawbird can bring that soul back to put the wrong things right. No, <laughs> no. Well, you know, the scene you just mentioned, I thought that that was Vos's way of saying that she thought he was a Jedi. Uh, because when they're fighting at page 316, you know, he, he snarls out, Darkai, you know, noticing that he knows her, you know, battle step, knows her technique uh, of lightsaber use. And then it goes to a part, and, and this is because they talk about, you know, Maul can't acknowledge or he can't show that he's a force user. And I think this is, where Maul fails in his mission, but they never mention it really. But uh, it goes, now he gripped the lightsaber in both arms, forcing his damaged right arm into service and gripped the hilt of his saber with his full strength. It was time for Juno, the way of the Vornsker, the last of the seven forms, a.k.a. Vapod. He seized upon it eagerly, allowing himself to be swept up in the chaotic frontal assault of thrusts, slashes, and jabs. Mull! A tremor of new fear pulsed from Vosa's face, disrupting her per her composure, as if she'd finally recognized the true ferocity of his purpose. But that, to me, is like, okay, you just jumped into Vapod, which is like, you know, the one that touches on the dark side. I mean, there's no way you can be using this and not be touching the Force, right? I mean, that, to me, I, I thought that, that that scene that you were talking about was, was her hinting that, you know, I, I don't think she could put together that he's a Sith, so I think she's just going to say in her mind that he's a Jedi, and I think she's trying to hint that to him. And Because when he talks about, you know, you wear your heritage on your hip, and she's like, no, my profession, things like that, I, I think that she is assuming that he's a Jedi, uh, which is very interesting in and of itself. I, again, I wish that there would have been more, like maybe seeing her getting a, a message from Sidious or Plagueis or whoever, you know, telling her to go and, and all that. I think like, there was some descriptions missing throughout the book in a, in a few of the regards, you know, the Vong, Vosa, <laughs> little tiny things, but, but things that may have helped it quite a ways. Um, another one that I wanted to talk to about was in that regard, he's looking at her and it's all Maul met Vosa's eyes. Even yet now he saw in what was surely her final moment of life. There was no surrender in her response, no hint of fear in the way she fought it. Watching her, Maul felt a realization stir beneath the rage to which he'd given himself over, an unfamiliar sense of connection, primitive and undeniable. She was no Jedi. She was no Sith. She was something completely other. And the idea of giving this worm the privilege of ending her life now was not to be tolerated. Not by Maul. Not today. And I I don't know. I, I love that moment. It was like, you know, I've talked before about having a Punisher Jedi. And in that moment, it was like Maul was it. <laughs> you know, he's like, he's coming for her. He's like, no, you're not going down by this worm. And and he's the one that basically single-handedly kills the worm by going pretty much stepping into its mouth and just, I don't know, lobotomizing the thing with, this, with the lightsaber, just spinning it around in a circle and stuff. Like, whoa, dude, did that just happen? And yet the way that that scene is written and some of these other ones are written, you, you kind of feel like... While Maul is, you know, kind of being all stoic and just waiting for his mission to end because he's a Sith and he has himself completely under control, it makes me wonder if once they get back to the ship, Kamari's expecting to have a little, uh, uh, for lack of a better term, since Maul is a, a Zabrak, an Iridonian Night Brother Zabrak, a little bit of a horn-y action. 
Um, seems as though she's kind of like, hey, big boy. By the time all is said and done, did you get the sense that she was kind of looking for more than, you know, a, a, a partnership in future adventures? That she was kind of leaning towards the, you know, we're both kind of the same, so let's get it on thing? He kind of had that layer of suggestiveness to the way certain things were worded between the two at times. Yeah, I definitely had that feeling like, yeah, there was something that, well, I mean, there, were, there was connection you know they kept talking about the connection and things like that so i definitely saw it in that regard too that there was an attraction to the two i know that that as they got to each other and stuff each one had that moment in their head where, where she's like maul and he's like vosa and i'm just like how do they know each other <laughs> you know i mean where was the message that said that there was going to be a leader of the, the Bandagora named Vosa? I mean, I was just kind of like, how did they know each other's there? Well, I mean, we learn about that, though. He knows about Kamari Vosa, who used to be a Jedi, thanks to Slipher. When Slipher is talking about the Bandagora, oh, yeah. he does let that slip. I mean, he's, he's talking to Maul and kind of gauging who exactly Maul is and what's going on and, and how are they. I mean, there, there's, there's the little tidbits dropped here and there. This is definitely a book that, even though it's made up into a bunch of very small chunks, you probably need to go as fast through it as possible so that things don't slip, because it's definitely one of those ones where something small early on can make a big difference later. Uh, speaking of those small chunks, though, something I, I have to give Schreiber a lot of credit for, and this is something he did that was pretty cool with his other books as well, um, something that, that I've done with Greater Good and the, the, the war stuff and whatnot that, uh, that, that I've published, or my works that have been published, um, is the chapter titles. Nothing quite like having a chapter title that makes you think, what the heck? Until when, you, when you're done with the chapter, it either fits or it seems to have been kind of snarky, like, oh. And there's, and he uses, he makes references in you. Like, you got uh, a character, I believe he was a, uh, one of the corrections officers named Hootkins, right? A reference back to the actor who played Porkins. And then you've got stuff like uh, the, the From the Land of the Ice and Snow as the, the title of one of the chapters coming from a song. You know, he's, he's got some kind of tongue-in-cheek chapter titles as you read through this thing, and I thought that was pretty cool. The way that they all play together was great. I love Behind the Mask and things like that. Each one had a really cool and unique way of, of setting up what was going to happen. Or like you said, it has a little snark factor. Um, but yeah, again, for me, the end of the book went awry right here on page 330. How long until we arrive? You're impatient, Maul dismissed it, simply ready to put this business behind me. I see, Vosa smiled at his tone, as if she'd expected nothing less. Not long now. Then leave me. Perhaps I'll see you up above? But Maul had already turned his back to her to stare down at the crate in the corner of the hole. It wasn't until he heard her leave and the hatch seal shut behind her that he took his eyes off the crate and turned to glance back at the door through which she'd already disappeared. And then I turn the page and I'm like, about the author? What? <laughs> like, like, I just, it, it totally was, was Death Troopers all over again, where I felt like there was just complete another chapter that was just left out of the book. I was like, wait, what, what, what? And that was, that was the downer of the book. I mean, I was enjoying the book all the way up to the end. That literally, that last paragraph and that sensation of where's my next chapter? That that's the negative for me. I mean, most of the rest of this was all stuff I can overlook. I had a really fun ride. I liked the way it was presented and all that did such a good job that it left me wanting more. I, I mean, I don't know. Maybe that's a test of he did a good job, but it left me feeling unfulfilled. And that's 
that is why I would not recommend this book as like an all-time great, you know, Legends book. It's a solid book. It's a good book. Uh, it's a unique book. But it's not a great book. Yeah, it's one that, like I said, I wouldn't avoid. It's not a bad book, but it's got some oddities to it that make it not one of the greats. But it's pretty solid, and it's definitely a different type of feel than you tend to get from just about any other Star Wars book. So if you're looking for something somewhat dark that does have an effect on other things, even if it's in a buyer's market sort of way, um, then this is definitely one to check out. Just know there are going to be a few head-scratching moments, like the Clawbirds, like the Vong, and like Radic being a Chiss and all. Um, but overall, it winds up being a, a decent book that had a very different feel for Maul than it would have had if it was one in which he was allowed to use his saber staff and allowed to use the dark side more openly throughout the book. It it takes a character and forces restraint on him that we're not used to seeing. Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Zoom, Stitcher, and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SW Beyond Films, or just type in Stars Beyond the Films in your search bar. Hey, no matter how you get to though, be sure to like our page. It's one of the best ways that you can interact with us. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or EU questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention you our Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash starwarsreport, you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about. Our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles. You can explore the Star Wars expanding universe or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate, because Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months with no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, it's Ben, Mark, and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening, and may the Force be with you. And don't quote us the odds. If we'll ever again see a Star Wars novel that would make the Johnny Cash reference of naming a chapter, The Man Comes Around. Says, <laughs> don't think so.
focusing pres But it's definitely not, not is the nuclear device, is that what they used on, on Plagueis that deformed him and, and scarred him? It's what they used to blast Sojourn um, and destroy that base of his there at the end of 305, or at the end of chapter 26 of Plagueis, yeah. And that's the one where he gets the, the mask. Uh, I'd have to look. It's been a while since I read Plagueis, but I think so, yeah. Well, I'm just, I'm just trying to, like, because... No, because he has a transporter already on his face. As okay. that I just, I'm just trying to figure out why the f*** you would give them... Because he's the one that gave them the so it's like, you gave and then they end up using it on you, why would you give them the But Sidious is the one who's maneuvering it, maneuvering to get it. All that Plagueis is there doing is trying to, um, to see what the heck is going on with Maul and, and potentially, you know, crush him and, and show that he's the one who has to make things work. I don't think he ever quite knew. No, there's a, uh, there's a scene in Sojourn, uh, But I don't think he ever necessarily knew what it was going to be used for, is what I mean. Yeah, he didn't know what it was used yeah. for. Yeah, because there was a scene where he said something like that, and he's like, I'm well, the let's, one let's who Well, let's hit that in the, in the main Definitely, discussion yeah, instead of this. An odd narcotic sizzling. An odd narcotic sizzling. An odd narcotics... Why am I saying sizzling? It's dizzy, it, it, damn it. Is it narcotic, or, or I guess it is narcotic? Yeah, dizziness. and I keep saying sizzling. <laughs> dizziness. Always you can email. Always you can email us. Something. I'm the manager.